everybody's got to realize that with the proliferation of all these new architectures, all these new approaches and all these new capabilities, now more than ever, it's not just about architecting or designing the perfect solution. It's figuring out what solution is good enough to get going, to learn out there. And then how do you architect for the future? Because it may be not better, but something, you know, better overall, but something different or new will inevitably come along. Hi, and welcome to another episode in Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. And today I have the privilege of having in the studio with me Greg Lotko, Senior Vice President and General Manager of the Mainframe Division of Broadcom. Hi, Greg. How are you? Doing great. Nice to be here with you, Des. Thanks so much for joining me. It's, uh, I've actually been dying to have you on the show for some time and uh, reading some of your background. We've got some amazing stuff to cover. Now, Senior Vice President and GM of the Mainframe Division of Broadcom and some of your background, some fascinating stuff to dive into. We've got an amazing conversation ahead of us. Before we do that, though, uh, as we were talking earlier on before we started recording, I hope you don't mind. I'd love to delve into just a little bit about uh, you personally and your background. You've got some amazing things we were talking about uh, off air. Could you maybe just quickly introduce yourself from uh, a bit of a background? So, you know, where are you from originally? Where would you grow up? And uh, there's a couple of fun anecdotes of some of your early jobs that I'd love you to share. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, I'm actually from Long Island originally, and I uh, I just moved back here last year after being off the island for 30 years. And kind of throughout my career, I've, I've moved all over New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Southern California, Northern California, then back to the East Coast with Connecticut, and now back to, to the island. But it's, for me, it's certainly been a coming home. And uh, I think one of the things you're referring to is kind of most people will ask me the question, you know, how did you end up getting into the software industry? But when they look at my resume, they go, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Then the thing that kind of stands out is I'm licensed up to 100 tons to run passenger vessels, passenger ferries. So as a as a kid uh, from 14 to 18, I was a crew on 100-ton ferries, yeah, predominantly 65, 75-footers that would hold 250, 300 people to day trip over to Fire Island, which is the barrier beach off of the south shore of long island and after four years of being a crew i had accumulated enough time and i had hit the ripe old age of 18 which back then was the youngest age that you could get a captain's license and i sat for my exam and ended up getting uh, getting my captain's license and i ended up doing that through through college on uh, summer vacations i'd be out on the water just enjoying myself running boats it is a fascinating background, and as we were talking earlier on off the air, I think it, um, it's one of these things where, you know, these days we don't often allow, uh, you know, we, I guess this is going to age me, but, you know, we say young folk to kind of take responsibility. But in my mind, that probably set you up perfectly in life uh, with essentially taking ownership responsibility for something big, um, which, frankly, people at age are capable of doing, uh, which, pro- I don't know, did that kind of, uh, did that set you up for some of the roles you've had since then to kind of really, you know, know that you're capable of taking some big challenges on and, and, and have that behind you? It did. It, there, you know, there was a lot of experiences. Uh, if you go back to the late 80s, uh, this was before the time of GPS, right? I mean, the, uh, the, the satellites weren't opened up for private use. It was all military at the time. So you ran a lot of compass courses. If you were lucky, you might have radar on a vessel. So um, I was out in the fog. I was out in heavy rain. Um, 
I was uh, out in a hurricane at one point. Uh, I've been sinking, uh, had leaks, uh, and uh, actually had had a, a near drowning incident one time uh, at one of the beaches. So the the thing it kind of taught you was to focus on what's important, especially in time of crisis, right? I mean, when when everything's kind of going wrong, you have to be able to focus and figure out fast what do you need to, to resolve first, right? What's the most imminent danger, the most urgent thing? And if you tie that into IT and you think about kind of all my future experiences, and I, I was an application developer as well as I've led product teams and and uh, from a hardware and a software perspective, and I've run support teams, you kind of learn when somebody calls in with a problem or when a team's in front of you with a problem is to figure out what's the most urgent issue first. How do I get, uh, you know, not necessarily final resolution, but how do you get to relief as fast as possible and get the business up and going? And and then you can worry about, you know, what caused what or whose fault it was or how to avoid it the next time once you once you address the immediate fire, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I love the idea of what you're saying there, just focusing on the outcome, getting to getting to the point you need to, and then you know, and, and almost triaging in many ways. I like to say uh, to, to just get people's minds focused and gravitating towards where you need to be, as opposed to running around, as you said, figuring out who's to blame. And you've got an amazing background there with like you know something in the order of like three odd decades and a bit uh, of actually being hands on uh, in the early days, all the way through to now, obviously you know heading up and managing some fairly big parts of the planet. That, that probably gave you a lot of great life experience to work on as well. I think there are a lot of people now who come from more of an MBA background, in my experience, and are in management roles, which is great. But without that hands-on experience, without actually having done it as you have, you know, steered the ship as a captain, as it were, um, you make decisions in a different way, I find. Uh, do you, is that something you've sort of found in your career, that you know, having been hands-on with a keyboard, whether it's as a developer or working with data or working with systems, it's it's given you that extra depth and, and pedigree, if you like, in, in making decisions through to the, the point where you are now at senior management roles? Yeah, I think so. The the you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't pretend to say that it was a a grandiose plan at first. I mean, I, I, I gotta tell you, I probably got halfway through the life experience uh before I could kind of in hindsight look it back at at what had happened thus far and realized the impact it was having on how it formed the way I thought to think about the roles that I did going forward. And, and it was really, you know, kind of as simple as this. When I, when I went to school, when I went to university, even though I, I majored in computer science, I, I actually majored in technical communications. And, you know, this is written and oral, verbal, interpersonal communications type of stuff, not, not telecommunications, which is what everybody always thinks of. But I, I had this desire um, to, I wanted to be an executive. I wanted to be a leader in in IT or in technology. So there was kind of a plan to the design that I thought early on in my career, being an application programmer, that I was going to be a programmer. I was going to be a tester. I was going to be a team lead. I was going to be an on-call you know, application person. And after I had all of those experiences, I wanted to go into management and I figured, well, then I'm going to go up, you know, a ladder and hopefully lead larger and larger teams. And probably about, oh, nine, 10 years into that uh, in IBM's history was when they had the big push on services. And uh, they were 
restructuring how the company ran and they were going to run the internal account as a, effectively a customer. And I found myself in a in what was the services arm of the company. And I kind of I kind of scratched my head and said, well, wait a minute, if I'm going to be in a services organization, I'd, I'd like to deal with real customers, external customers. And that's what kind of brought me over into, you know, I went from in, internal corporate IT and application development into services and in the field where for two and a half years, the only office I had in the company was actually sitting at a customer location. And, and that really opened my eyes, but it was still, you know, that first mm, 13, 14 years of my career was all about using technologies to deliver business outcomes, you know, from an application perspective. And then it was just kind of dumb luck and timing. I got an opportunity to move into what was then software group at IBM. And it wasn't really my plan. I hadn't, I hadn't planned to go to the product side and depending on who I'm talking to, I talk about it as moving over to the dark side or the light side. I'll let, <laughs> let you guys figure out. Which one that was. I love but, it. Um, when I stepped over to the product side on software and I, I really found it was was interesting for me to get involved in conversations with customers. I used to introduce myself and say, you know, hey, I'm a fraud because I feel more comfortable on your side of the table than on my side of the table. But but it allowed me to relate to them as they were using using our products. And I spent I spent about the next 10 years of my my career around software. I, I kind of went in and out of of mainframe. I had uh, run service and support for IMS. I'd been a director of IMS, fabulous experience. I was a director of DB2 for ZOS, but I did things in the, the content management, the digital media space that was around RS6000s and uh, distributed machines. I, I did information integration. Uh, I ran warehousing at IBM. And, you know, so after about 10 years in, in software, um, because of largely because of my background in mainframe with IMS and DB2 and the application side, I got offered the opportunity to run mainframe at IBM. So where, you know, the next generations of the hardware was coming out. Uh, I was the head of mainframe when the Z Enterprise system launched and when we set the design for the the Z12 and the uh, the early work on the, the Z13. And uh, so I moved over to hardware. And uh, at that point, you know, I spent, uh, I guess I probably spent about uh, eight years in, in hardware at IBM. I kind of scratched my head and turned around and said, wow, you know, I've, I've, I've worked in applications, I've worked in services, I've worked in software, I've worked in hardware. Um, it it kind of looked brilliant in hindsight, but it was really more about opportunities that presented themselves and maybe about halfway through it, realizing I was getting a really good perspective of, of what it takes, uh, you know, for customers to be successful with technologies. It's not it's not about one aspect, it's about every aspect. And then uh, something we didn't get to talk about earlier, which you're probably gonna be a little surprised, but I, I find it kind of humorous. Um, when I was in high school, actually all through school, uh, I was really big into acting and singing. And uh, oh, wow. it was really funny. My, uh, you know, if you were able to find the program to my high school musical, Bye Bye Birdie. I was actually Birdie, by the way, the Elvis character. Um, I showed up and the program said, hey, upon graduation, Greg's going to pursue a career in, in acting and singing. And I was like, what? What, no what the heck way. is this? 
<laughs> and, uh, and I remember pulling the director aside and I said, you know, this, this, this isn't what I'm doing. And he's like, why not? And I like to think it's because he thought I was so fabulous, but we're all legends in our own mind. Right. And, that's, uh, that's brilliant. It was, it was simple math in my mind. If you think back to, <clears throat> you know, this was 1984 if you think it back to 84, you know, you, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have YouTube, you didn't have all these platforms to launch a career. And in my mathematical mind at the time, I was like, you know what, I've got a much better shot at being an executive in technology someday than I have of being a famous actor or a singer. And, uh, and I kind of think, you know, uh, leadership is, uh, is all about situational leadership. Um, dealing with challenges is all about, you know, dealing with that challenge and what that situation needs at the time. Um, I, you know, I don't want to leave people with the impression that it's, it's, it's acting. It's not, it's not acting. It has to be who you are at the end of the day. But I think you also have to recognize it's gotta be about what the situation needs, what the team needs, what the customer needs, and then figuring out to how to provide what is needed in that situation. So I think those skills kind yeah. of, I think they dovetail nicely. Well, you know, a lot of people poo-poo acting and, and creative uh, arts and whatnot, but uh, at the end of the day, it's about communicating a story. And um, I think, you know, yep. regardless of what we look at in our career paths, the most successful people I've worked with and, and worked for and had work with me are people who can communicate. And uh, so your career path has been astounding. I mean, you've gone through the IBM suite family, you've been through CA, uh, recently uh, now inside uh, Broadcom. Um, it's on the lips of everyone's uh, conversations. Uh, everyone's talking about what this actually is. Um, I'd love to get your view and take on the whole Broadcom acquisition and, and I guess more importantly what it means for the mainframe business unit, um, particularly the whole broad, Broadcom mainframe sort of enterprise IT space. Yeah, sure. You know, first let me, let me give a, another little bit of context because people kind of wonder I've been asked – you know, after almost 30 years with IBM, why, why leave? And look, there's no, there's no animosity or, or ill will there. This was a decision I made. And I, you know, I mentioned up front, I moved back to the Island after 30 years. Um, I've got aging parents that are on the Island. And, uh, quite honestly, I was, uh, I was struggling with how to, to help my, my parents at this stage in, in life. And, uh, you know, I was living up in Connecticut. I was doing roles with IBM, and and I just didn't see a path to to get myself down to the island and and do the jobs that I was interested next in, in IBM. And I, I, honestly, I wasn't really thinking of leaving, um, but a recruiter for CA approached me out of the blue, and uh, and I had had good experience when I was at IBM interacting with CA around the the mainframe positions that I that I had been in. So uh, it was kind of uncanny because they have this uh, this location in Islandia. So I, I reacted, and uh, you know, I guess that means they kind of proverbial uh, offered me the, the you know made that offer that I couldn't refuse, and it allowed me to to kind of dovetail career interests with family interests, and it and it really worked out. And it it was a position that was in mainframe. It allowed me to go back to kind of the. The technological first love I had and the, the common thread I kept coming back to in my career, whether it be around applications or software or hardware. So that brought me to IBM and uh, I mean, sorry, to CA after IBM. And then uh, 
and then who knew, right? I mean, I, I wasn't even here uh, a year when the due diligence uh, came up around Broadcom. And, you know, coming to CA and feeling good about it, part of that was about understanding, you know, did CA understand the importance of the mainframe going forward? Um, were they going to continue to invest in the core products that customers have counted on for many years? And, and were they going to invest? Were they going to be doing targeted investments for new capabilities in the platform? And CA convinced me of that. And then when Broadcom started with the due diligence, uh, that was where all my questions centered right away. And, uh, you know, so I got to tell you, everybody can see the, the comments that have made, been made externally in, uh, in Broadcom's third quarter earnings where Hoktan, the CEO, said, hey, we're going to be doubling down on mainframe. We believe in the power of the mainframe going forward. We see this as a durable business. Um, I got to tell you, um, all the conversations and now that I am part of Broadcom, all the actions I see in how we're planning for the future and the things that we're being afforded the opportunities to do um, absolutely are consistent with what you've seen as the, the external comments. And, you know, so Broadcom is a, is a company that's got a lot of really neat technologies and they're, they're very pervasive in the enterprise level data centers. But not everybody realizes that because they tend to be kind of in the products that people buy versus, you know, necessarily purchasing uh, components or technologies from them directly. You know, maybe they maybe they uh, purchase some of the brocade network networking gear uh, directly, but but they may not be aware of how much content is in the enterprise data centers and. Broadcom very much wanted to develop that direct relationship and be able to expand um, their influence and their involvement on an enterprise scale. And uh, and that's why CA was so attractive to them, and particularly the mainframe division. So, I mean, in all candor, um, you know, people people ask me, so what do you think of the Broadcom acquisition? And I, it, it's very easy. It, it, reality is, I think this is fabulous for the ecosystem. I think it's fabulous for our customers, customers of mainframes. I think it's fabulous for my team. Um, you know, CA, I think, had the right strategy and was doing some incremental investment. Broadcom is just accelerating all that and doubling down. And, uh, and it takes a lot of forms. Um, but, you know, first and foremost, it happens with uh, investing in teams and people and expanding the number of people. So we're doing hiring around the world for the team to expand so we can expand our investment. So it uh, it makes a lot of sense to me, and I think it's real good going forward. Yeah, the thing that struck me was that uh, when I look at these things, and you know, we've both been in this game for long enough to kind of have a gut sense of where it's going. The thing that jumped out at me, and in fact, uh, just talking to somebody on a flight coming back from Dubai to Sydney, and, and they were sort of asking about it, I said, well, in my mind, this kind of lets Broadcom go full stack now. Uh, and there's a long conversation to be had around that. But I think there's a lot of focus these days on being able to provide value all the way up through the stack from, from you know, literally the ground all the way up through the top of the software stack and managing those things. And I saw this as a natural fit. And, and I guess that leads me to my next question around kind of the, you know, what we're referring to as the inflection point around the mainframe platform. I'd love to get your insights and what's really driving, you know, sort of the, the transition and inflection points around the mainframe uh, world. I mean, you're on the bleeding edge of this stuff, literally living and breathing every day. 
What's driving this whole change, the, 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 the shift to or the transition within the mainframe uh, space in general? You know, it's funny. Um, people talk about the inflection point, and it, it, it's absolutely there. But uh, by the same token, I also think about it and I go to myself, you know, this really isn't an inflection point. It's a, it's a, it's a consistency or a recognition of the value and, and the understanding of where this, this platform can and should play. It's yeah. a, it's a raised consciousness or a, or a broader awareness. Right. I mean, and, and the thing is to folks who understand the mainframe platform well, um, this is no surprise to people who don't it it kind of becomes one of two conversations it's it's either people who kind of want to listen want to try to understand want to talk about what's going on in the world and whether or not this can provide value and they have an open mind uh listening to it and then there's a set of folks that are just like oh mainframe uh you know not listening they they turn off right so you'll hear the you'll hear the quips right mainframe was a cloud before the cloud was a cloud right oh, of course. And, and people are talking about the virtualization right and, and and the problem is you can say that and people who understand it get it there's a whole set of people that you know they've been brought up or educated um, outside of mainframe that they hear that and they go, oh, you know, this is the Rodney Dangerfield. I know I'm dating myself by using Rodney as a, <laughs> as, a, as a reference, but they're like, oh, you know, this is just the scorn people. But the reality is, um, you know, the internet has opened up and empowered consumers, customers, right, to have more direct access and to interact with businesses, not only directly, but more frequently. And that drives huge volume of data and transactions. And that that swings a pendulum towards needing a platform, needing an environment that can handle scale with efficiency, that can handle huge swings of you know high throughput to to low throughput and scale up fast and 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 immediate. Um, it also needs ironclad security, right? Um, so a, a lot of these things are kind of swinging back to what are core values of the platform. You know, we could go into all the kind of the stuff that that how much of the world's data you know still resides on mainframe and. And the amount of large corporations that are growing their MIPS and all that. But it, a lot of that comes off as people saying, oh, you know, they think they hear that and they, they hear it as defensive or whatever. It's it's not. It's really just the facts. And it's it's not that the data is there because somebody hasn't moved it off. It, the data is there because it's secure. It's resilient. It's performant. It can scale. And uh, I think more and more with the technologies that people are investing in and making sure that they have a tie-in and an access to the mainframe, people are realizing it's not about either or. It's about how, how all these technologies can work together. It's about having a hybrid infrastructure and putting the right 
workloads or the right interactions or the right technologies on the right platform. And so I think that's the inflection. I think it's a it's a consciousness or an awareness of of using the right platform and the right tool. Everybody who knows me knows I'm a car guy. Right. So, I mean, you don't use a Corvette to go to Home Depot or Lowe's to go pick up your new lawnmower. Right. You'd use a pickup truck for that (laughs) by the same token. You know, you want to go a cruise in a cruise on the back roads with the top down. You don't get out the chainsaw and cut the cab off of your pickup truck, right? I mean, it's it, different experiences and different tools. Absolutely. Um, I, I had a funny conversation with somebody recently where um, I think it was a guy, uh, uh, Stephen Dickens, who's the head of IBM's Linux One platform space, and we were talking about this very topic of people pooping mainframes and, you know, mainframes are old, et cetera. And you had this great line where it's like, well, you know, if you bought a Porsche 911 back in the late 60s uh, and you kept it today, then, yes, it would be an old car. Um, but, you know, the Porsche 911 apparently came out at the same time as some of the early mainframes. But when you buy the Porsche 911 Carrera today, it's a 2018 model. And, and similar, if you buy a mainframe today, it's the 2018 model. It's either, you know, the Z14 or the, the ZR1. Um, and yeah, look, there's a long conversation we could have, and, and maybe we'll have you back on the show to do just that to dispel the whole myths that you know, LPARs were virtualization, and 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 Docker Kubernetes, etc., is just reinventing LPARs. Um, but the thing that really did strike me, what you're saying there, more than anything, is that um, there's two things really. It's horses for courses in many ways. Um, you know, if I'm flying around in an airplane at uh, 42,000 feet in the air at uh, 950 kilometers an hour in an Airbus A380. What platform do I want to make sure that thing's ticking along? Um, and, you know, whether it's my bookings and reservations or, or just managing the platform. And uh, versus what's running on my phone, you know, I think it's, there's a big... A lot of people think when they're... Particularly if they're younger developers that, you know, one, one magic piece of code can do everything. But then they don't necessarily have years or decades of experience of things breaking and what happens when it goes wrong. Um, and yeah, I think, re- look, reality is I don't want to be trying to carry a mainframe around in my pocket to make a phone call while I'm driving my car, right? No, no, <laughs> God no. But by the by, by the same token, right? I I don't want a, a a cell phone being what's handling the FAA systems, keeping my planes in the air, or, or you know, handling security or or logistics for the parts for the plane, or even for the parts for building my next car. No, and, and yet, you know, funnily enough, when, I, when, I, when you say that, what it immediately brings to me is, is the smartphones, the, the modern terminal, um, and the back end, well, the back end's what it is. And so, you know, if, a, if in the old days the 3270 terminal crashed and died, we just unplug it and replace it. If a smartphone, you know, has a mishap, we just get rid of it and take it back to the shop. And that's a very different pl- you know, user experience, as in that's just the front end, and if something goes wrong with an app, we kill the app. If something goes wrong with the phone, we reboot the phone. Uh, but we don't reboot the whole planet just to be able to get to the back end, and millions right. of people need to. Um, so, you know, I, I did like your uh, comment with regard to the whole cloud piece because I think we forget we forget exactly what the internet and the cloud and so forth really actually are. But you know, one of the things you said there with regard to what's driving this change, and in many ways, this change is in my mind an evolutionary thing. It's like it, it, people think because of the media hype that things happen overnight. In my experience. But I'm sure you agree that these things, you know, they've taken decades to evolve and uh, uh, to, to transform and, and, and mature. And, you know, we look out the world now and we go, no, oh, I've got a smartphone and it does all these great things and it can render in 4K and I can stream it flat out and 5G's coming along. 
Um, but it didn't happen overnight. It's had to evolve. It's had to grow. And when people have been building business systems, you know, the technology that's been underpinning that uh, has a long proven history and a pedigree around that. And in your career path proves that more than anything in that, you know, you've come through that process of watching that big iron grow and develop. Um, that really kind of brings us to the, the next key thing that I'd like to get your insights on that is, that, you know, there's been some consistent and, and similar major business challenges throughout all of our experience in life. And, and often we think they're all new. Cloud has supposedly changed the game and big data changed the, the game. But I actually often say to people, well, we're still facing the same commercial challenges, same business challenges. We just have different approaches now. What's your take on, on some of the major challenges that businesses are facing now, and, and, and particularly around digital transformation? You know, is it the case is this, this is a whole new thing we've never seen before, or is this just a natural evolution that we're just facing in a different way? I think uh, I, I, I think the technology has afforded us different ways to solve problems and challenges. I think the technology has also provided additional opportunities for challenges, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you, uh, you, you never would have thought about, you know, maybe 30 years ago, right? Carrying a device in your pocket that somebody could get your banking ID off of or your credit card or, or something like that. It just, it just never would have occurred to you, right? You would have, you would have thought about somebody physically stealing your wallet or stealing your, your money. Right. So, um, connectivity has kind of opened everything up, you know, uh, businesses want to have, uh, certain data, certainly our personal information, behind firewalls, yet they want their, you know, all the things about their products and services and the ability to become a customer with them to be totally open and accessible and findable and searchable um, without much work, right? It, it, and maybe maybe even 10 years ago, that meant it, 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 you were going to do a, a Google search or a Yahoo search or, or whatever. And now you just want your phone or an app to bong when you're walking in a store to tell you, oh, you know, two doors down, there's another store that has the same product that is cheaper or better or has a better warranty or whatever. So, you know, it's 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 a uh, it's a value and and it's a vice. But I think I think uh, first and foremost, everybody's got to realize that with the proliferation of all these new architectures, all these new approaches, and all these new capabilities. Now more than ever, it's not just about architecting or designing the perfect solution. It's figuring out what solution is good enough to get going, to learn out there, and then how do you architect for the future? Because it, maybe not better, but something you know better overall, but something different or new will inevitably come along, right? And it used to be you know, usually my good analogies are car analogies, but I, I, I guess I'll relate it to listening to, to music in your car, right? I mean, it, it used to be you could listen to AM radio, then you could listen to FM radio. Then, oh, my God, you had this thing called, uh, actually, they did put vinyl record players in cars for a while. They had a problem with skipping. But then, <laughs> then, it, was, uh, then it was eight track tape. 
but we all learned really quickly that that starts to wear out and you got to fold over the little piece of cardboard to jam it in there. Right. Right. But, but all this was allowing us to get more and more music of what we wanted to listen to in our car. And then we went to cassettes and then we went to CDs and, and then, you know, now we're all on, on MPEG files and, and, or streaming, right. Not even, not even necessarily downloading. And I, I know you and I have been kind of on this earth about the same amount of time. I, I kind of remember that the, you know, part of this was as a kid and then as an adolescent and then as a young adult, this, this naivety of theory that the next solution was the last and best, right? I mean, I remember my brother having a lot of 45s and albums. And I remember as I started getting into music, oh, I, you know, it was impressive to build that collection. And then I somehow I managed to skip over eight tracks, but uh, I got into cassettes and then it was like, well, geez, I want all this music on cassettes. It's smaller. I can take it where I want to go. Right. But we all had the experience of the tape deck eating the cassettes. CDs came out and I went through a wholesale change of not only was I buying the latest and greatest music, but I was also trying to replace the old format. I think nowadays we got to realize that we're designing something that's really good. We got to realize that something else is going to come along that's going to change this environment. But I think even the the newer, greater awareness is do not redo or reinvent just for reinvention's sake, right? So that's where I'll tie it back to the mainframe where you say there's some mission-critical workloads or, or core processes that that ain't broke. We don't need to fix them. We just need to optimize them and open them up. And, you know, I guess this completes the analogy back to the music phase. You know, cassettes have kind of dropped off. Eight tracks have dropped off. Um, but with all the digital music that we're listening to, the thing that has had the resurgence and hasn't really gone away is the vinyl records. And it's because of the experience. It's because of the value. It's because of the, the quality of the sound and all that kind of thing. And, you know, on some level, I can relate that to the to the mainframe experience it's it's preserved those qualities of the workloads of you know days long ago where things are still working to you can do new things on it but all throughout it it's had that resiliency the stability the throughput the security and the ability to carry things forward so i think the digital transformations are it's about architecting for the future it's about simplifying the user experience it's about Focusing on what brings value and preserving and capturing the value in the investments that you've already made, optimizing those investments so you can provide the best overall solution. I think the consistent thing there with your great analogy around music is that music was the core theme. Experiencing music yeah. was the outcome. And you know whether it was on 8-track or in my case, I'm a mini-disc nut. I still listen to my music yeah. on a mini-disc just because I think they're hip and cool and people ask me what the hell they are. But the outcome we're looking for is uh, the, the experience of listening to music. And if you're a service provider, you want to be able to figure out how to deliver that experience. And through the generations, it's gone through a different medium. But even now, I have to admit that, you know, this show is on Spotify. This show is on iTunes. This show is on Acast and Mixter and Stitch FM and some 30 or 40 syndications. But you can still download it as a WAV and a MOV and an MP3. And, uh, you know, I'm sure at some point it'll be on devices that we have never thought of yet. But it's that consistent underpinning 
delivery component of listening to music and that analogy. And I think this is where when we think about you know, people poo-poo the mainframe, and I love when they do that because I'm like, well, you know, have you been on a flight lately? Oh, yeah, okay. Well, what platform did you book it on? Oh, I jumped on my smartphone. And what did it talk to? What's at the back end? I don't know. Well, I can assure you it was a mainframe, and it was a mainframe running a database system with lots of stuff in a data lake, and it was secure and robust, and it's, it knows what you know, five nines are. And, you know, I start to rattle things off like, well, what about banking? Um, well, and, management, and, and that's, you know, you know, you think about it, that's, that's part of the reason they didn't have to know was because it was on a mainframe, right? Yeah. Because the thing is so resilient, it is so stable, it is so secure. It has had so much investment, not just in the platform, but but from the customers that have been developing these applications across many years, right? I mean, it's such a well-oiled machine that they don't have to know, which is which is a value and a vice, oh, right? Absolutely. Because people don't realize everything that it's doing in the world. No, in fact, we've gotten so uh, obsessed with this whole Uber everything that we forget that you know that sometimes the Uber yeah. that turns up is in a forty-year-old car. Um, I, I love throwing the really <laughs> big topics at people. You know, when I say to them, "Well, think about you know." Uh, one of the things I said recently around this is that, you know, there was a quote, and I'm trying to remember now, but something along the lines that in the rush through the dot-com boom and through the web 2.0 experience and now chasing unicorns, you know, people have forgotten that there's been a platform powering most of the biggest mission-critical systems we use every single day, uh, and it just keeps on ticking. And, you know, as I was saying before, like, it doesn't matter whether it's day-to-day -day banking or wealth management insurance, um, whether it's, you know, uh, booking a hotel or booking a, a trip on an airline or Anything you do with the government generally, you know, traditional retail and manufacturing, medicine, defense systems, transport, logistics, telco stuff, anything that needs to stay up for a long time has all just been ticking away. And it's easy to look at the phone in your hand and think, oh, and yeah, it runs on that. But it, it actually doesn't. Um, right. it, one of the things I'm really keen on hearing from you more than most is that you're out there doing every day. There's a big challenge in keeping pace with a lot of, you know, what we're sort of referring to as, you know, real-time demands now. People want that, that um, celebrity experience. They want to be a VIP. Everything's got to be instant on always, instant on, 24-7, 365, real-time. Um, just keeping pace with that is, is, is causing a bunch of very breathless boardroom uh, discussions. And the concept that we've got to keep changing everything seems to, to, to bring in a bunch of fear. But it seems to me that, you know, mainframe is a platform that already keeps pace with this real-time demand. It's been doing that from the day it was invented. Um, what are some of the thoughts that you share? What are some of the advice points you offer people when you think about how, how they're going to deal with not just the digital transformation, but just today's market's desire for real-time everything? Yeah, the reality is there's no other platform on this planet that handles throughput at scale like the mainframe. So then the the question becomes about the approach of how you get access to that, right? And, you know, early on, I think people's delusional concept of hybrid IT meant copying data off of the mainframe and creating marts so that you could, could analyze them or render information to the edge. And, and reality is you, you put a delay inherently in there if you're copying and then moving the data over, and then you got to go back up and keep it up to date. So the reality is to leverage the speed and the throughput and the performance of the platform, to leverage the security of the platform. Yeah, do the things you want to to create the end user experience on the platforms that can give you, you know, the best the best graphics or the best interface or 
you know, whatever, whatever it is, but go directly back to the mainframe platform to drive at the speed, throughput, the scale and the, and the security of it. And that's really what makes the difference. Now, I think the, the other challenge for folks has been that access. And, and, and it's not, it's not that you can't or couldn't do it in the past, certainly within the last decade or so, it's about whether or not it's readily accessible to the programmer that didn't grow up on mainframe. And, you know, that's some of the stuff that uh, not just from a CA Broadcom perspective, but there's a number of us in the, in the marketplace, IBM, Rocket, um, us as CA now Broadcom have, have gotten this. And we recognize from an ecosystem perspective that we need to open up access to the technologies that we've already deployed. We have to make it easier to, you know, to have APIs into the products and the capabilities that we have available out there. And we also need to be able to tie this into the open source technologies. I, I kind of jokingly refer to these as the, the cartoon characters of open source development, you know, with the cute little animals or, or, or cartoon characters, Git and Jenkins and Gulp and, and all that type of stuff. This is, this is all about uh, this project called Zoe, right? I mean, three of us getting together, uh, each investing uh, technology or capabilities and, and open sourcing it to say, let's get these developers that understand how to interact with these open source tools, tie them into mainframe capabilities and give them the ability to access all this information in these apps and deploy it with them pressing down and leveraging the value and capability of the mainframe without them having to be so well-versed. And by the fact that we, you know, we contribute this to open source says, you know, this isn't just an IBM, a rocket, uh, a, a Broadcom thing. This is open. You know, we're, we want others to participate. We want customers, we want vendors, we want, we want other product providers to do it. And we're committed to opening up our technologies, you know, into the library systems, the security systems, whatever, through APIs, through the, you know, the appropriate levels of security, but to interact with these things. And and some people don't get this. They kind of ask, they go, well, wait a minute, aren't you, aren't you on some level, you know, leveling the playing field so that it doesn't matter whether or not I use your product or somebody else's if I don't understand what's behind it. And I kind of go, well, no, that's actually exactly the point when you open this up and you provide access, now you have customers deciding, not based on whether or not they think they're locked into any given technology, but they're going to compare based on the core value feature function of the underlying product. They'll decide what they're going to use in the underlying infrastructure within their institution, whether it be a bank, an insurance company, whatever. And, and we'll compete on that level, you know, us with IBM, with Rocket, with others of whether or not you should be using my tool or somebody else's, but we'll compete based on value, not based on lock-in. I was, I remember reading uh, some of the early material around the announcement of, of um, where Zoe sort of, I guess, spawned from. And I remember seeing your name there. I think it was uh, Andy, uh, is it Jonas? And, Andy Jonas um, is the CEO Rocket. of Rocket. Yep. yep. And Barry Baker, was it from IBM and yourself? Um, it was. We're we were talking at about share. This. We launched this. Yeah, we launched on stage together. And uh, I, I was sitting there thinking, I was watching remotely and thinking that I bet there's some jaws that have just hit the ground that, uh, you know, 
people kind of assume that open source is on the mainframe to some point, but to now see this whole concept of open APIs within ZOS, and we've heard about Linux on the mainframe, and we know about the ZR1 that's just come out recently, which is exciting, and yep. the traditional 19-inch rack. Um, but uh, open source and collaboration and all these exciting things, we sort of people often take for granted in places that are not mainframe. Uh, that must have been exciting to be on stage just announcing that, looking at the faces of people going, guess what we've got for you, and it's free, and it's now. I think it, I think you've given it to the Linux Foundation as well, from memory. We have. It's it's OMP that is actually running the project. We we contributed the command line interface, which is, uh, you know, something we were calling Brightside before. And uh, it's funny, it was, uh, it was developed by, you know, pretty much millennials, people who were working on the mainframe that were developing other core products that we had from CA. And they just, they wanted to be able to use those open source tools in their development. So they had created this command line interface to help tie products together and do the interaction. And it wasn't like it was spawned out of some product initiative. It, it really was a grassroots thing. And, and, uh, and we saw it and said, wow, this is really cool. This should get into the light of day. And, and then we started talking with IBM and Rocket and, you know, Rocket had contributed the web interface and uh, IBM has worked with us on the, uh, the API definition. And we, we all kind of realized we, we recognized for the ecosystem that this is what was really needed to open it up to a broader audience. Uh, and, you know, it's funny, I, I use the term open there. I don't necessarily mean with open source, but I mean open up the access or the audience that could could interact with the mainframe. And, and what we realized is we had a lot more common philosophy on what we thought was good for the platform going forward. But we also kind of set back and we realized that open source was the way to go so that it wasn't just our opinion of where everything should go, but to let the community get involved with figuring out where it could go. And, uh, and it was, you know, it was particularly gratifying. I mean, uh, I obviously in my, my years at IBM, I I'd worked with Barry Baker before. Um, Barry was actually an IMS director. He, he was there uh, a, a few years after I was. So we have some common experiences. And Andy, I've known for a number of years. Uh, truth be known, we're getting back to that acting and singing thing. Probably, <laughs> eh, probably around 2012, 2013, I was at a mainframe customer appreciation event. Um, I performed on stage with the rocket band. We did a 14 song set. So, uh, no way. so we all have known each other for years. And this, this was, uh, you know, not quite a musical collaboration, but a collaboration for the benefit of our mutual customers. It makes a lot of sense. I'll have to go and find that. I was actually, I had the privilege of uh, hanging out at the uh, home in the mainframe, as it were, in Poughkeepsie for a week uh, behind scenes too. Yep. Um, recently and uh, chilling out with the, the Bukostinkos of the world and uh, a series of bucket list tickoffs. And I met, uh, you know, kind of Kr- uh, Krakowski in, in real life, uh, the mainframe kid, and a couple of his colleagues, uh, Will Troutman and Ed Pryor. And, you know, they were right in that space you're talking about. That is that, you know, they are using all the latest, greatest modern tools, some open source, some just open. Uh, they assume everything's software defined. They want APIs to everything. And they assume security's built in and baked in. And it was just, I actually got the chance to put them on a podcast and have a chat with them. It was amazing to listen to these super bright young guys um, talking about things in today's language, uh, but then realizing that they were working on some of the longest running, deepest heritage hardware and systems, operating system platforms known to mankind. 
And it just gave me this really neat chill of like, all right, there's hope for humanity. <laughs> uh, well, and the, rea- you know. the reality of it is, is we all we all find that so astounding. Yet, if you stop and think, just just for a second, right? You go back thirty years ago, we were those young pups, yeah, and we were we were working elbow to elbow and side by side with the people that had sent men to the moon, right? And it launched those first, you know, really really broad banking apps or insurance apps and everything. And, and we were the young whippersnappers that they were like, wow, you know, they, they get this, they want to learn. And, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of always say this, uh, we learned, right. And it's not like we were any smarter than the people that came before us. And I like to think we weren't any dumber. And the, the folks that are coming out of school today, they're not any smarter. They're not any dumber. They have a different background. They have a different frame of reference. They're certainly building on a lot of innovation that came before, but they're going to innovate and they're going to develop a lot of astounding things into the future. And reality is, I firmly believe 30 years from now, there's going to be somebody doing a podcast. Maybe if you and I are lucky, somebody will pull a snippet for this and say, hey, Des and Greg were on this podcast and they predicted it back when. (laughs) I hope so. There's going to be a couple of folks on a podcast or whatever they call it at that time, right? I mean, I don't know. It'll be a a flyback transformer or or a flux capacitor or something. But but there'll be be some audio. There'll be some experiential. Maybe it'll just be thoughts beamed into somebody's head. I know I'm so far off tangent now. My point is (laughs) there there will be somebody sitting around talking about the idea of what came before everything that people knew about the mainframe and that they developed and how these newer folks are actually innovating and taking the platform forward for the next generation, still being able to leverage the power, the capacity, the capability of what came before, but reinventing and creating new things for the future. It it really, this isn't the first time folks have talked about it, you and me. It happens, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Now, before we wrap up, there are two last things I'd like to throw at you. Um, one is the whole topic around integrating mainframe uh, into this whole digital transformation challenge. And, you know, there are a couple of things that come up, the whole topic of cloud and what that actually is and is not. And and I guess underpinning all of that, you know, data privacy, security, et cetera. And we hear about the new mainframe platforms having encryption baked in, whether it's, uh, you know, data in transit or data at rest. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening in the media around, you know, data leaks and security and, and so forth. And I'd love to get your thoughts on a couple of things. But firstly, um, just that whole challenge of incorporating the mainframe into digital transformation efforts with the, within the context of security. Um, you know, some of the th- what are some of the things you're hearing from people and, and what are the conversations you're having with people around addressing that challenge of security? And, and I guess underpinning that whole thing of cloud, you know, the, the, the different thinking that cloud brings into that with regard to security in particular. Well, so for security, I mean, it's absolutely top of mind of everything, everybody's mind, right? I mean, whether you go uh, GDPR, the European um, legislation, whether or not you look at uh, the leaks of credit card information or data from from retail institution, um, I got to tell you, I, I, I sleep a hell of a lot better at night when I know my data is on a mainframe. Um, so then, so, so, so now it's, how do you tie into it? The, the encryption bit, you know, you, you, you talk about the pervasive encryption on the mainframe today. It's not like, 
there wasn't that capability technologically to do it a generation ago. It was just the amount of memory and the processor speed uh, that now you can be pervasive about it and you can drive the throughput on that encryption live. So, uh, so it really does create a better opportunity for people to leverage that power of the mainframe, whether it be, you know, secure key serving or just the data that you're pumping through it for the encryption. It doesn't necessarily have to be a workload that's running on it. Um, I think uh, this is front of mind for, for everybody. It, it certainly has to do with with some of the investments we've made. Uh, you know, if you think around, we've got a, a thing called data content discovery. Um, there's the there's the idea that you have to protect data and you got to lock it down, right? So that's that makes you think about encryption. That makes you think about uh, uh, top secret ACF2, RACF, you know, security managers, um, enterprise security managers. But but that kind of that that kind of says you know what you're trying to protect or you know what you want to lock up. And remember earlier we talked about people making copies of data and spinning off marts. The, the other issue is institutions don't always know where they have that confidential data because somebody may have copied stuff for, for testing purposes because they may have taken a feed out of another system and injected it into another process. Or, I mean, think about this one. It could be a process that 20 or 30 years ago, the data wasn't considered confidential. So it wasn't marked as personal information. And that workload was deemed that it could be run you know, out in the open, and somebody isn't even aware of what's going on in that application. Think about, think about, you know, probably when you and I went to university uh, in the in the U.S. If you were trying to find out how you did on an exam or find out what your grade was, oftentimes your professor would just post a piece of paper on the outside of the door, and so that people couldn't see each other's names or know who got what grade, they'd use your social security number. Yes. Oh my God! Yeah. You, nobody would ever do that today, right? You don't let that number out. So think about that relative to systems. That that might not have been flagged or a credit card number or, or the CCID might not have been flagged. So we have capabilities, data, data content discovery, that searches through your data and allows you to not only use a bunch of qualifiers and definitions that come pre-canned with the software, but you can do custom qualifiers that may be unique to your business environment. So I think I think security and the power of the mainframe comes from the platform. It comes from the encryption. It comes from the OS. It comes from the 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 middleware and the middle 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 layer of software that's providing that security. And then the applications as well. But it's also these types of capabilities that can go and sniff in your environment and and discover what's going on. I don't think any one of these things is the answer, but all of these things together are what you need to be doing. You need to protect the data that you know should be protected. You need to be looking for where you have data that is out in the open that you didn't realize needed to be protected. And then you need to be able to control the access. And then after that, you know, now you also think about um, people, it, it used to be security breaches happened by people who got behind your physical firewall, you know, whether it be contract employees or or facilities people or cleaning people or whatever that would walk out with paper, right? So they were behind the security and they walked out and you didn't even know it was, was taken. It's the same thing in the computer world. If somebody gets your credentials, you know, 
they're you when they're back there. So if they're doing something you're authorized to, how do you know? Well, there's capabilities like uh, compliance event manager, different, different software capabilities that can say, okay, I see this being done and this person does have access to this, but is the pattern changing? Are they looking at things differently? Have they done something out of the norm for them thus that you can start to investigate? And I think it's all these things together that need to be think about, thought about if you're, you know, if you're a CISO or, or a CIO that you need to be thinking about in the environment. And the mainframe's got a heck of a lot of capabilities in this space, more so than any other platform. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, there are a lot of scenarios where, you know, no matter how, uh, I mean, security is baked into the DNA of this infrastructure and platform, and it's part of the cultural behavioral ecosystem around it. But, uh, you know, if someone runs a payroll or they do end of year tax uh, receipts and they send it to you in the post, uh, it's impossible to secure my letterbox unless there's a, a, a key on it. And so someone can still get the data. I do like your uh, a, a example of uh, posting results on the wall of things. I've seen that recently uh, and, and cringed and thought, mm, we should probably have a chat to somebody about that. Uh, just on the cloud topic, uh, we were talking earlier on, and, and I really liked your uh, thoughts on the, the sort of the whole transition to cloud models and cloud thinking, but not necessarily transitioning to the quote unquote cloud. Um, and you made a comment with regard to adopting cloud models and, and the whole bimodal uh, hybrid mix of you know on-premise, off-premise, private cloud. Um, before we get into the last piece of, of what I want to do and get you to gaze into a crystal ball before we wind up, I'd love to get your thoughts just briefly on that sort of whole topic of cloud and what that conversation is like currently inside the team uh, and how you describe that transition at the end of a digital transformation and, and adopting cloud thinking cloud models. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go to the public cloud, does it? No, and and, and actually I think this is going to tie right into thinking about the crystal ball and the, and the future. I, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, when people say cloud they tend to think the cloud, which makes people think public cloud, right? They think off-prem, they think large service provider, they think the data isn't at my site, it isn't secured at my site, the compute isn't at my site, I don't have to deal with any of this. And uh, the reality is for for smaller workloads or, or uh, not, not large enterprises that want to spin up, um, you know, uh, a, a workload, an application, but they don't, they don't want to make that investment up front in the, in the hardware or the infrastructure to do it. Uh, it makes a whole hell of a lot of sense. But for these businesses that know they're on big scale, that know that they need to protect this data, that know it's the jewels of the company, and they want to have the flexibility and freedom of motion, more and more I think there's a growing awareness that they want the capabilities of a cloud from the spin up, the spin down, the, the, you know, easy provisioning, the virtualization, all that kind of stuff. But they don't want to be beholding to an external entity to, you know, get their data back or get their process back. Uh, they've tried to approach this challenge by saying, well, I'm going to go with multiple cloud service providers. And they think that that's, you know, they thought that was going to provide them the freedom and flexibility because no one institution would have all their business. They could pull a portion of it back. They could move it somewhere else. But but that's cost prohibitive, right? I mean, it's the pulling it off where it, where it really gets, gets painful. So I think this is where it ties into the crystal ball. I think you're going to see a, a more and more raising of, a, of awareness and consciousness that 
what people value is the cloud concepts, but the large enterprises that know that they're going to have these processes and these environments going forward, you're going to see them talking about cloud as private cloud. More and more, it'll, it'll become the conversation about their cloud or the private cloud versus the public cloud to get them those capabilities, but to still have control, protection, and, and actually they'll get the efficiency, they'll get the cost effectiveness value of the cloud. They'll just have it in their, their own environment. And I think, I think that's part of the crystal ball of you look into the next three to five years where in the last three to five years, the answer to everything has been the cloud. Now, what's the question? <laughs> yeah. I think I think going forward more and more, you'll hear people go, no, 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 I get it. Here's why I want to use cloud or cloud concepts, but it doesn't make sense for me to be in the cloud. It makes sense for me to have my private cloud, and here's how I can control it. Here's how I can secure it. Here's how I can provide the right efficiency. And look, I'm getting all the benefits without the vices. Um, you do have some vices, sure. I mean, you got to maintain your 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 hardware, but um, but I think that's going to come more to the forefront. And certainly, if you look at the large enterprises, you know, whether it be Fortune thousand, Fortune five thousand, maybe even, um, I think that will come more and more kind of out of the out of the darkness, out of the closet, into the forefront of people talking about. No, no, this makes sense. On on prem private cloud, this makes a lot of sense for us. I like it. I, I was uh, I can't remember the event recently at a federal government closed door thing, and I uh, my closing slide said that uh, cloud is not where I do i dot t. Cloud is how I do it, and uh, I got a good laugh because people were like, "Cloud's not where you do it; it's how you do it." And then I said, "Yes, but it's actually i t at the end, information technology." Um, well, I think that's a perfect note to wrap up on, uh, Greg. Thank you so much for some amazing insights into your personal life and your career and um, some amazing anecdotes there. And, uh, yeah, really appreciate you giving us some amazing insights into kind of the, the big topics that are coming up in you know, conversations all over the place, whether it's the Broadcom acquisition CA, uh, the, the challenges around digital transformation, where security fits into that, where the mainframe and the ecosystem around that and, and what Broadcom can bring to the market offers. And certainly your, your closing uh, comments there with regard to you know, what cloud actually is and is not where it's going. It's been fantastic to talk to you, and I really appreciate you making time to catch up with me today. Absolutely my pleasure. I think, uh, you know, look, it's an exciting time for, for the mainframe ecosystem. And uh, there's challenges ahead, but, but absolutely even greater rewards. And it's, uh, it's an exciting time to be part of that ecosystem and especially to be with Broadcom. We're looking forward to the opportunities ahead. We think it's uh, it's a great time to be involved with Mainframe. Legendary. Well, folks, you've heard some amazing insights uh, on a personal and professional level from Greg Lotko, Senior Vice President and General Manager of the Mainframe Division at Broadcom Inc. Uh, je definitely jump online, check them out on social media, LinkedIn, etc. And uh, and do go and uh, do a web search on some of the key topics we talked about. We'll have some links in the show description. Uh, some amazing reading to be had on there, and particularly the Zoe Project. Uh, Greg, really appreciate your time. Thanks again, and hopefully we'll have you on the show again soon. Sounds good. If, if, if not sooner, you and I should get back together in 20 or 30 years and see how much the conversation is the same and how much it's different, but I'm sure it'll be exciting.
<laughs> well, if you listen to my wife, if you listen to my wife, I'll be a grumpy old man by then. But anyway, folks, thanks for tuning in. It's been fantastic to have your uh, your uh, company on yet another uh, conversations with Des, and we will see you in the next show. Thanks for joining us.